Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Mid-City Church Sermon Cast. My name is Fernie, and I'm the pastor here at Mid-City Church. Today, we're starting a new series called God's Future Now, and it's, uh, I'll, I'll uh, forewarn you, it's our generosity campaign, it's our stewardship campaign, but it, it's not just about that. It's about casting mission and vision and, and really setting the tone for where we want to go as a church in the next year. So if you are a regular attender of Mid-City Church, uh, we want to, we, we, my hope is that this uh, sermon and this series will kind of inspire you to join us in mission. And if you're not a regular Mid-City person, if you live outside of Baton Rouge and you just like to listen to this podcast, uh, I hope that this will inspire you to help bring about God's future here and now, wherever you live and in whatever community you're a part of. So you ready? Let's go. Have you ever heard of a guy named Eric Musambani? I think that's how you pronounce his last name. So he was a 22-year-old from Equatorial Guinea who qualified for the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000. And not only did he qualify, he was the first person uh, from Equatorial Guinea to qualify for this swimming event in the Olympics. You see, in an attempt to encourage participation from developing countries, the Olympic Committee uh, extended slot, and they, they do this, but they extended a slot in the men's 100-meter race, swim race, uh, to somebody from Equatorial Guinea. And after a rigorous competition of just one, Musambani automatically uh, qualified to represent his country at the Olympics. So uh, uh, the, the unfortunate thing was that the cards were completely stacked against him. So eight months before the Olympic competitions took place, Musambani did not know how to swim. So he had eight months to know. And you have to remember, he had no, com- uh, no one to compete against in the qualifying round in his own country. So uh, he just automatically uh, qualified to represent his country at this uh, in the Olympics. So, uh, again, it would have been impossible for him to not qualify, right? He has no competition. To make matters worse, because Equatorial Guinea had never competed in swimming before, the largest pool that Musambani could train in was a private hotel pool measuring 13 meters long. That's 37 meters shorter than an Olympic pool. Now, if you're like me and don't really understand meters, I did the math for you already. That's 111 feet shorter than an Olympic pool. And that's a long distance, right? On top of that, the pool was only available to him from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. and only three days a week. All right, so let, let's connect some dots here. Musambani is about to go up against the greatest swimmers, elite world-class swimmers. He has eight months to learn how to swim and will have a total of about 100 hours of pool time uh, by the time the Olympics uh, come by, right? That, that, and that, the, that amount of swimming time is uh, nothing compared to swimmers who have spent their whole lives practicing, right, from the time they were infants, pretty much. So it gets worse. Because Equatorial Guinea had never competed in swimming before, there were also no swim coaches. So on top of all the odds that were already against him, he would have to be self-taught in order to go up against, again, the best of the best, right? The best in the world. And so uh, by this point, he was starting to get desperate. And so he came up with a plan to go to nearby rivers and out to the ocean. And he would swim in front of local fishers. And he would ask the fishers to give him some pointers on how to swim better. I mean, that, those were his coaches as he prepared for the Olympics. 
So this was his strategy, right? But let me stop here and ask you, do you think he has a chance? Do you genuinely think he has a chance at, at doing well at the Olympics? My guess is not so far. So in an interview following his Olympic race, Rusimbani told reporters that when he first saw the Olympic pool at Homebush Bay, which is where the competitions took place, he panicked because he had never seen a pool that big. I mean, I, get, I, I picture like a little kid who sees a pool for the first time. It's like, I have to swim across that, right? Like it was huge compared to what he was used to. And, and it was out of that panic that he put together one last minute plan to hopefully help him better himself. So as the U.S. swimmers practice laps in the pool, Musambani says that he stood at a distance watching their technique and taking notes for his own race. He also connected with the South African coach, who I would say pretty much felt sorry for Musambani because uh, the South African coach offered a, a couple of quick lessons for free and even gave him a pair of competition swim trunks and a pair of goggles. I mean, just think about that. Musambani is about to compete on the world stage against the best of the best, and he doesn't even have competition trunks or goggles, right? That's how outmatched he seemed to be as he stepped up to the platform on September 19th, 2000 for his three-man qualifying heat, right? So he's going up against two people. The winner, if they finished within a qualifying time, they would get to advance to the main heat with the other main swimmers uh, for that competition. So Musambani, along with these other two swimmers, they step up on their blocks, they get into position, and then much to everyone's surprise, the other two swimmers took a false start, which led to them not only being disqualified, but it also led to Musambani being the only competitor on this heat. In other words, he didn't have to worry about the competition. His, his race was against the clock. He just needed to come in at a reasonable time in order to qualify for the next round. So let me ask you again. Do you think that uh, he, he was able to qualify? Like, do you think he was able to compete with the other swimmers? So to give you some perspective on how incredible his swim was, you need to understand that at the time, the Olympic world record for swimming the 100-meter uh, freestyle was 48.3 seconds. Now, do, do you want to know what Musambani's time was? Let me just tell you, it was record-setting. Believe it or not, it was record-setting. His time was just shy of 1 minute and 53 seconds. That's more than double the average pace at the time uh, and 11 seconds longer than it takes Michael Phelps to swim the 200 meters, which is twice the amount that, that he swam, that Musambani swam, right? So to this day, Musambani continues to hold the slowest time for the 100-meter men's freestyle heat, right? He, he's in the record books. So after learning this story, uh, I would say that none of us are surprised at the outcome, right? I mean, it would have been a complete miracle if he had been fast enough to qualify, right? He had eight months to learn. He practiced in a small school. He had no coaches, right? I mean, it would, it, it would have been impossible for him to really be a competitor at this uh, stage. Here's a surprising part about this story, though. After Musambani's competition in the year 2000, at the 2000 Olympics, Equatorial Guinea built two Olympic-sized pools to train future swimmers. They also hired coaches and provided the resources for future athletes to actually have a chance at competing in the Olympics. And here's the even more incredible part than that. After all of this work had been done in Equatorial Guinea, a year later, Musambani set a national record for the fastest 100-meter time of 57 seconds. I mean, he almost cut, it a minute, uh, uh, cut his time down by a minute, right? And, and on top of that, that's just 10 seconds shy of the Olympic record. I mean, he, he started competing, right? I mean, this is an incredible story of someone who uh, uh, just like made a big turnaround, right? 
you know, I think what I love the most about this story is that it proves to us that when people are given adequate resources, the playing field is leveled. See, at first, Musambani's race was a bit of a joke to everyone, right? He was so slow. Uh, there was even a, a, a commentator during the, the recording of it, during the live uh, recording of it, where the commentator was like, I don't think he's going to make it, right? I mean, this was a joke for a lot of people. And some even used this race to argue that uh, developing nations shouldn't have a spot at the Olympics because there's no way they can compete. But the reality is that once Musimbani had an Olympic-sized pool to practice on, once he had coaches to mentor him and the support from the people around him, he was suddenly fast enough to compete at the world stage. See, when the playing field is leveled, when people are given adequate resources and support, things drastically change for those who receive them. In the past year, you have helped level the playing field for so many people. You have helped people receive adequate resources and support, and because of you, lives have been drastically changed for the better. And let me tell you, after two years of ministry together, I am honored more than ever to call myself your pastor because you have truly embraced what it means to help bring about heaven here and now for all people. See, in the past year, through your generosity and sacrifice, we donated enough blood at our, at our blood drive with LifeShare Blood Center to save 21 lives. Just think about it. Because of you, the playing field was leveled for 21 people who were in need of that blood. Back in August, as a church, we donated enough school supplies to fill 23 backpacks to help students at Bernard Terrace Elementary. Because of you, the playing field was leveled for those students who would have otherwise started school already behind. Speaking of Bernard Harris, we also provided Christmas gifts for 30 kids in need uh, at the school. And because of you, the playing field was leveled for all those parents who had no idea how they would provide for their families in the middle of this holiday season and all the extra bills that come with it and uh, rent and all that kind of stuff. You know, last year, we also donated a little over 300 pounds of food to the store at uh, Baton Rouge Community College, and the store is their food pantry. See, because of you, the, the playing field was leveled for those students who were struggling to have access to food, right? Something as basic as food. We also collected 20 blankets to donate to people in Baton Rouge as the cold temperatures moved in. And because of you, the playing field was leveled for people who would otherwise not have resources to provide warmth for themselves and their family members. We also partnered with Be Nice Music two different times last year. The first was to help, uh, help pass out candy on Halloween. We passed out a, a, more than a thousand pieces of candy on Halloween so that kids could have a safe place to trick or treat. And the second partnership was with Mid City Redevelopment Alliance. We partnered with them to go and help clean up the, the Be Nice Park. Um, and, and um, you know, I've got to say, because of you, the playing field was leveled for all those kids and parents who didn't live, uh, don't live in the safest neighborhoods and now had a safe place to trick or treat. And the community was made even more beautiful for, for everybody else to enjoy. We also partnered with the Hope Shop to package over 100 boxes that were going to be sold and, and the proceeds were going to be used to support refugee women who made crafts and, and th their crafts were in those boxes. See, because of you, the playing field was leveled for women who would have otherwise not been able to receive a sustainable income. We were even able to give a donation to the LSU Wesley Foundation this year to help with the incredible ministry that they do. And because of you, the, the playing field was leveled for a ministry that welcomes all people. See, because Mid-City Church exists and because you have chosen to be a part of it and have joined us in mission, the playing field has been leveled for so many people. And as we look around, even though there's still work to be done, 
our community better reflects the kingdom of God today than it did a year ago. So church, I applaud you for that. I have to break it to you though. We still have work to be done. There are still people who need access to food. There are still people who go to bed at night without a way to keep warm. There are still people waiting to receive units of blood in order to survive. There are still students who don't have access to school supplies and kids who will spend the holidays without any gifts to open. There are still kids who live in neighborhoods where they have to worry about violence and plenty of neighbors who no longer have the ability to keep their community clean who need our help. I mean, I can go on and on and on with the amount of work that is left to be done. But I'll tell you what, because we exist, because we have been the church, because we have chosen to be a part of this, the work that is left to be done, it doesn't overwhelm me at all because I know that we will step up to do the work. I have no doubt about that. Here's what I have to be careful with though. Here's what we have to be careful with. While the work we are doing is great and it's important, right? And it helps level the playing field. I think it's time for us to take an extra step on this journey towards making our community better reflect the kingdom of God. So let me explain. In Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, Jesus tells this parable. A man owned a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He said to his gardener, look, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree for the past three years, and I've never found any. Cut it down. Why should it continue depleting the soil's nutrients? The gardener responded, Lord, give it one more year, and I will dig around it and give it fertilizer. Maybe it'll produce fruit next year. If not, then you can cut it down. Okay, so it seems like this scripture has nothing to do with taking the next step towards bringing about God's future now, right? But it actually has everything to do with it. See, this fig tree that wasn't producing fruit was becoming a nuisance to the vineyard owner. He, he felt like this tree had equal opportunity to produce fruit since it was planted in the same soil as the other trees and plants, and it probably received the same amount of water as all the others and the same amount of sunlight, right? Like it, it, it had a quote-unquote equal playing field compared to the other plants. But this one tree wasn't producing fruit. So he wants this tree cut down immediately. But the gardener, it seems like he understood something about this tree that the owner didn't. He understood that in order for this tree to, ha to truly have an equal opportunity to produce fruit, in order for it to really have a level playing field, the tree needed a little bit of extra work. It needed the soil around it to be tilled, and it needed some fertilizer to help it grow. And while scripture doesn't say this, I think the gardener was so convinced that this would level the playing field for this fig tree that he even tells the owner, if, if it doesn't fruit, uh, produce fruit next year, you can go ahead and cut it down, right? He knows that it's going to produce fruit if he just puts in a little bit more work. But let me show you what it takes uh, for this tree to produce what, what we expect, for the, the playing field to be leveled, right? That's what he's trying to tell the, the, the vineyard owner. And that is the work that we as a church have been called uh, to do, and that's the work that we have been doing, right? We've been leveling the playing field for our community, but, but there's something that I want you to notice about this scripture. The problem that the gardener needed to fix there was a, an easily visible problem, and then there was a deeply rooted problem, right? So the easily visible problem was that it just wasn't producing fruit. Everyone could see that, right? And so that just required maybe a little bit of extra water, that required more sunlight, that, you know, that, that was an easily visible problem that had some solutions. But then there was a deeply rooted problem, and that problem was that the soil needed some work. You see, regardless of what was done to fix the easily visible problem, which they did help, if the deep-rooted problem wasn't fixed, the problem would never be fully fixed. 
You see, we work towards fixing the easily visible problem uh, uh, of hunger by feeding people. But there is still a deeply rooted problem that needs fixing, right? We can work towards fixing the easily visible problem of resource inequality in schools by providing school supplies. But there is still a deeply rooted problem that needs fixing. We can work towards fixing the easily visible problem of the need for more blood in Baton Rouge, right? Units of blood in Baton Rouge. But there is still a deeply rooted problem that needs fixing. We can work towards fixing the easily visible problem of violence, right? By creating safe spaces in our community. But there is still a deeply rooted problem that needs fixing. We can even work towards fixing the easily visible problem of poverty in Baton Rouge by helping parents provide gifts for their kids over the holidays. But there's still a deeply rooted problem that needs fixing. You see, as long as the deeply rooted problem isn't fixed, we will always have work to do. And don't get me wrong, working towards fixing the easily visible problems in our community is very important and very necessary. We have to keep doing that work. But I think it's also time for us to focus on working towards fixing some of these deeply rooted problems so that our community can more permanently reflect God's future now. See, like this gardener, we too are called to fix whole issues in our community, and not just part of it. And as daunting as that task may sound, I think it's actually very possible. So last week I got to spend some time in Austin and I had the privilege of working with an organization called Mobile Loaves and Fishes. It started off as a group of friends who decided to make sandwiches and then once a week they would drive around in their green minivan feeding houseless people in Austin. And the more they drove around and the more sandwiches they gave out, the bigger they realized that the problem was, right? a, 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 a more deeper issue that they realized it was. So they decided to buy a food truck so that they could take the truck to areas that were highly populated by houseless people, and then they provided food for them there. They could feed more people that way. So the more they did that, the deeper they realized the problem was. So in order to fix that deeper rooted problem, they bought some land and had some people donate campers to them so that they could provide temporary housing for houseless people. But again, the longer they did that, the more they realized that there was still a deeper problem that needed to be fixed. So they bought more land and started teaming up with local architects who started designing and building tiny homes free of charge. Together, they built a tiny home village equipped with an outdoor movie theater, community kitchens, community gardens, job training facilities, affordable grocery stores, even stuff like a dog park, a fishing pond, and a hair studio. I mean, they have without a doubt worked to level the playing field for houseless people in Austin. But despite the great work they are doing, they realized that they needed to do more to fix a deeper rooted problem. So. They've been working with local organizations and politicians now to set aside over 100 acres of land to build these tiny home villages that will provide housing for houseless people. And the incredible part is that once they accomplish this task, they will have created enough housing to house 40% of Austin's houseless population. Now, that's incredible, right? That's that The work they're doing is fixing this deeply rooted issue by for at least 40% of the houseless population. And the way they did it, right, was by digging deeper every Every single day, right? They found something, they did it, and then they, they would dig deeper, trying to find the root of the issues and working to fully level the playing field for all people, in this case, for houseless people. And look, while they still have a lot of work left to be done, they are more permanently helping uh, to bring about God's future now for at least 40% of uh, Austin's houseless population, right? Church, hear me out. The work we have done is incredible. The, the world needs these things from us. The world needs us to be the church in these ways. But I don't want us to ever become complacent. Uh, 
We must keep searching for deeper rooted issues that we can work against. We must remind ourselves that there is always more that we can do, which will help to bring about God's future now more permanently for those who need it most. And like I said earlier, I know the task sounds daunting, but if we truly believe that there will be a day when there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more poverty, no more crime, no more hunger, no more racism or sexism, that list goes on and on and on and on. If we truly believe that someday all things will be made well, then why not stand up against those things here and now? Why not help to bring about God's future now for those who need it most? So let me tell you how I want us to accomplish this, how we will accomplish this. So first, know that our leadership team, our core team, will be working to help identify what steps we can take as a church to dig deeper in our community efforts, right? So they have been tasked with helping us to discern this for the upcoming year. So if you're on leadership, um, uh, know that um, I'm praying for us on this journey, but also want to encourage you, if you're not on leadership, pray for our, our core team. Pray for that team, uh, that group of leaders who are trying to figure out where is God calling us to in this next season. The second thing that we're going to do to accomplish this is uh, I'm going to challenge you all to have conversations in the small groups and on this podcast, this sermon cast, for the next couple of weeks. We're going to keep this conversation going, and the cha- I'm, I'm going to challenge you to have these conversations as to how we can work together to fi- fix deep-rooted issues, right? So we're not just going to do it on a large scale as a church, but I also want all of our small groups and you individually to find ways that you can fight and you can push towards uh, fixing these deeper-rooted issues. Uh, the third thing we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to consider filling out a, 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 or starting to give to the church. Uh, I'm going to ask you to consider funding the mission of our church as we work to bring about God's future now for all people. See, we have a lot of work to do, and it's through your generosity that we're able to make that work happen. So so here's what I want you to do. Uh, you can go to uh, midcity.church slash give, and you can set up a recurring gift that way. You can also do a one-time gift, and uh, that, that money will go to fund the mission and everything that we do here at MidCity Church. I also want to encourage you, if, if you want to give, but you feel like you're not financially ready to do so, know that we're in the process of putting together a financial peace class that will help you really look at your finances and how to balance your budgets and uh, all of this through a Christian and godly lens. So if you are saying to yourself, I want to give to this mission, I want to give to what the church is doing, but I can't do that right now, I want to encourage you to join this uh, class. We'll be sending out more information in the next episodes. And uh, if you're at a place where you're saying, I just can't give financially, or I'm already giving to another church or another organization, here's what I would ask. I would ask you to pray for us as we move towards uh, living into this mission. Just keep us in your prayers. Pray for our leadership. Pray for our small groups. Pray for everybody who is um, um, working towards this. So here's a prayer that I want to invite you to pray as we go through this process. Uh, say, God, where are you calling me to be in my giving towards Mid-City Church as we help to bring about God's future now, your future now? So wrestle with this, pray about it. And, uh, you know, if you have a, a spouse or partner, talk to them about it. I really want to encourage you to, to prayerfully consider giving to this mission. You've heard of all the great things that we've, we've done. You've heard of all the great things that we want to do. And I just um, I just want to let you know that we, we can't do this work without you and your help. So if you would pray about that, if you want to be a part of that, this is one of the ways that you can join us in mission. So I want to thank you. Uh, I, I ask that you keep us accountable as we move into this next year. And I just, uh, I pray that at the very least, you have been inspired to go and bring about God's kingdom now, God's future now for all people in some deep rooted ways. May it be so. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mid-City Church Sermoncast. If you'd like to dive deeper, visit midcity.church slash sermoncast to find a home sheet that goes along with this message. On the home sheet, you'll find scriptures, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge that goes along with this sermoncast. I want to invite you to support our ministry here at Mid-City Church by giving today. To give, text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to the phone number 225-307-0662. Thanks and see you next week.